we have a guest speaker dr stuart mcallister from ravi zacharias international ministry share with us on a thought provoking message on the topic is the unseen real is there more to reality than meets the eye right morning everyone are you happy to be here this morning okay good good to see everyone um there are some chairs if you want to come up front and uh, those at the back yeah welcome all right uh this morning is our big sunday and uh, we're delighted to have a special guest with us to uh speak to us from god's word and uh, dr stuart mcallister just a little background he was born in scotland and he came to know the lord at the age of 20 and uh, shortly thereafter he joined operation mobilization it's in 1978 and he spent about 20 years working in vienna serving in vienna austria and uh, he um, his ministry he's serving there took him into yugoslavia and uh, at that time he was even imprisoned for 40 days for distributing christian literature uh, and after his release he continued sharing the gospel proclaiming jesus in this in these communist countries and uh, had several more imprisonments and uh, that didn't deter him in any way he continued serving the lord uh, he um, served also as the general secretary of the Evan- european evangelical alliance from 92 to 98 uh, he's been uh, also involved in uh, or he's developed a mobilization movement called love europe uh, which has mobilized several teams and people across europe uh, to share the message of jesus christ in uh, 1998 he joined ravi zacharias international zacharias international ministries he as the international director and uh, he currently serves as the, the global support specialist uh, so he travels extensively speaking in churches uh, universities and several other forums uh, he also has been a lecturer at the alliance theological seminary in new york where he has received an honorary doctor of divinity degree uh, he's also uh, a writer and he's contributed to rzms uh, several different publications and magazines as well as to uh, chapters and several books so we are truly honored uh, to have dr uh, stewart mcallister come and speak to us could we all rise to our feet please and uh, put our hands together and give him a warm welcome this morning it's always a, a joy and a privilege to be back in india my first visit to india was in 1988 and there have been a lot of changes since then there are a lot more cars There were ambassadors, a few of them at that time, and now there's just every conceivable, I couldn't believe it, trying to get from the airport to the hotel last night. The two-hour, I wouldn't call it a journey, I think it's a crawl, <laughs> but you know, I'm used to suffering and so I took my share in trying to get there and the young man who was driving was explaining, but these days in the world, we think we have freedom, we buy these big cars, big engines, big power, and then we end up, we can't go anywhere. You know, you get a car with a, a four or five hundred horsepower engine and you can get, you can do three miles an hour on the highway. So, you know, good luck with that. But it really is a joy to be here. I love being in India. Um, people often ask me, do you have a problem with the food? And I look at them. I said, look, I grew up in Scotland. The British know how to kill food. I said, it was Indian food that saved us. <laughs> and that's true. I'm not making that up. I was 15 years old when I had my first Indian meal and it was like, whoa. the world of spice the world of flavor it was like my goodness you can do things with food and of course since then i've learned you can do more things with food especially indian food than i could imagine 
So it's a delight, and I delight in your country, your people, and the tremendous talent that this country is unleashing in the world today. So thank you for letting uh, an old Scotsman um, come and speak to you this morning. I'm a bit older than most of you, not all of There's a few gray hairs like me, but um, I hope I can speak to you from the vantage point of a little bit of age. Now, I don't really need to say in India that there's a difference between the British, right? There are four tribes in Britain, and there are the English, the Irish, the Welsh, and the Scots. And when the gospel came to the English, the English uh, took it and made a culture out of it. That's why they received it. The uh, Irish received it because it was something they could fight about. The Welsh received it because they were something they could sing about. And we Scots receive it because it's free. <laughs> in the book of Psalms, one of the oldest books of the Bible, this is the prayers and the songs, thousands of years old, still used today across the age, written by the Hebrews, a collection of life, meditations, and experience. You read these words. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? And this is very important because I want to raise this against the backdrop of our theme today, the unseen, is it real? Here is a person uh, offering a reflection on life and, of course, assuming that there is a God or some kind of being there. But this God, this being in his mind, uh, what kind of a world is this that if there is a God, he would be cognizant of us? He would be interested in us in some way. But I'll come back to that as we go along. You see, the psalmist is raising a profound question. And as India has developed over the years and thousands of years of tradition, thousands of years of understanding, perhaps, perhaps more of a transcendent awareness than many other nations, this has been a question that echoes throughout India, but not just in India, all across the world. What is the nature of reality? You see, that's a very fundamental question. Not just in movies like The Matrix, where Neo is trying to figure out whether to take a red pill or a blue pill or go down the rabbit hole. And if you haven't seen The Matrix, you have to go home and do your homework. That's that old. But the psalmist is asking something about the nature of the life, because here's the fact. If there is a God, then that fundamentally changes everything. If there is no God... That fundamentally changes everything. So, so much hangs upon this question. And I just want to say from a personal background, I grew up with the absolute conviction there was no God. I was raised in an atheist home. I was an angry young man. I left home when I was 15 years of age. Christianity and religion, I thought, oh, it was past its sell-by date. We believed in science. We believed in spacemen. We believed in ET. We believed in everything, anything but Jesus and God or whatever. So the whole idea of religion to me was morally repulsive, intellectually abhorrent. So I wasn't even willing to consider it. But what I was considering, interested in considering is the question that hap lies at the heart of all of our lives. How can I be happy or find happiness? Everybody's asking that question. doesn't matter if you're born in India or in Germany or in San Francisco or in Latin America, in Lima or wherever. Every human being wants to know what is the, the basis of happiness. But the second thing that we also ask, how can I avoid suffering? I want to know how can I succeed in life? How can I flourish in life? How can I avoid sickness and pain and death? And these are big questions that boundary our life. You'd all agree with that, wouldn't you? Happiness, everybody wants to be happy. You might want to be happy in different ways. Some of you want a big car, a better job. Some of you want to be athletes and win the gold medal. Some of you just want to get a, happy, a nice spouse. Some of you just like another meal. Some of you just want to be left alone. But
But everybody wants to be happy in some sense and avoid suffering. You see, the subject of the nature of reality, the subject of hope, the subject of what is the unseen, is there more to reality than meets the eye? It's been discussed by philosophy, by religion, and by art for centuries. Listen to a few voices. Here is the writer Oscar Wilde. He said, there are two tragedies in life. One is not getting what you want. The other is getting it. Now, some of you will find this out in life. Bangalore is a city of power, a city of success, a city of energy. You can see it all around. New buildings, the high-tech world, big business, investments, banking, technology, buying up and preparing, education. But some of us climb the ladder of success or run the rat race, and then when we win the race, we find out we're just a rat. Or we climb the ladder of success only to find that the ladder is leaning on the wrong wall. There's nothing there at the top. And many times people get there older in life or sometimes even in their mid-30s. And if they've been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, what now? T.S. Eliot, the writer, said this. I had rather walk as I do in the daily terror of eternity than feel that this was only a children's game in which all of the contestants get equally worthless prizes. So here is a man who came to understand that the eternal had an impact on every decision that he made in life. And if there was no eternal, there was no purpose. He wanted his life to count. Now, I am from Scotland. The West has increasingly gone more and more secular, more and more towards new atheism and naturalism, the rejection of God, the rejection of all these kind of things. And you're seeing it in our culture. So young men, young women today in universities and culture and society are told, obviously, by education, by science, and by so forth, I come from nothing, I go to nothing, and therefore they conclude, I am nothing. Now, they don't want to believe that. If you come from nothing and you go to nothing, you're told you're supposed to have purpose and meaning in life. But philosophically and existentially, how can we justify meaning if we come from nothing and go to nothing? And so this sense of worthlessness... This panicking sense, who and what are we, is a brooding disease all across the West, and we are exporting it around the world. Despair is a Western condition that we are lovely, we are very free to export these days. Here is George MacDonald, an author. He said, man finds it hard to get what he wants because he does not want the best. God finds it hard to give because he would give man the best, and man will not take it. So in other words, in the heart of this question, the unseen real, I'm suggesting to you this morning, even if you don't feel it deeply, but I suspect that many do, that there is a level of alienation that all of us struggle with. Not quite sure what it is. I go to bed at night saying, is there not more to this? I have a marriage and I love my spouse, but it just doesn't bring all the goods. I have a good job. I have a good car. I have a good education. I have a whatever, or I'm getting it. But I still seem to live with this existential gap. So here we are facing existence, wanting to be happy and good, hopefully, because happiness and goodness need to go together somewhere, we hope. For some people, it's, well, just how can I be happy somehow, someway, whatever, do whatever works. And for a few, and this is the frightening, there are people in our world who want to be happy no matter what the cost. People like Paul Pot, people like Milosevic, people like Saddam Hussein, who use power and authority and evil to rule over people. And there are many human beings in our world like that. Even in the great, one of the great classic books, in Dante's books, the, the, uh, what someone cries out, evil be thou my good. Now it's sad that in our world there are people who see evil as the means to their good. But it all raises the question, who and what are we? Is the unseen real? 
So let me go back to this pursuit of happiness. You see, classically, as people try to understand how can I be happy, in the classical world, the vision was to be happy, I had to conform the soul to reality. Now, even in India, we had something similar. We have the Logos, if you like, in Greek philosophy. We have the creation coming from the Hebrews. You have the Rita coming out of Hinduism. You have the Tao coming out of uh, Chinese thought. But the idea was that there was a supreme reality, and we had to somehow conform our life to what that reality is. So things like duty, honor, love had to bow to transcendence in some sense, whatever the transcendent was. But you see, in the modern world, we have replaced this. We live in what some people call the liquid modern world. We're cut flowers. There is no givens, there are no rules, and there is no limits. So what does that mean? I have to bend reality to my passions. If I can just get more money, more power, if I can control people, if I can control circumstance. So all of our life, all of many of your lives, is a project trying to manage reality to do what? To make you happy. How are you doing? How's that working for you? Succeeding? You see, the more we try, the the more we find that life slips out of our fingers. Here are some examples. Let's look into this. Never enough. Never enough. You know, I've studied the lives of the rich and famous. I read biographies. I meet people. And one of the greatest insights into human heart has been given to us, or many insights, by the philosopher Blaise Pascal. Listen to these words. Blaise Pascal was a man who came to a very dramatic faith, a mathematician, the the man that basically was the foundation of, of the computer systems in many respects. But listen to this. If our condition were truly happy, we should not need to divert ourselves from thinking about it. So what he's saying is observing French society. He sees people with toys and power and money, but they don't want to ask the big questions of life, so they keep themselves distracted. He says, I have often said that the sole course of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. Any of you know what that's like? Quick, give me the TV, get my iPhone out, quick, get the iPad on, because if I have a second of consciousness, I might suddenly awake to the fact that I'm lonely, empty, and apart from my iPad, there seems to be no life. The mystery of life is being replaced by the mastery of Google. But what people want, said Pascal, is not the peaceful life, but the agitation that takes our mind off it and diverts us. That's why we prefer the hunt to the capture. That's why men are so fond of hustle and bustle. So what is he saying? He's saying that if we were truly happy, why is it that we spend all our life with diversions and distractions? Why is it we can't really embrace life? But a second issue is that we have not enough control. You know, have you ever noticed it doesn't take long till you start looking around? There's many people who are orientated by justice. The bad things happen to good people, and the good people do bad things. Even in churches, even around Christian organizations or religious people. In fact, some of the bad people we know in the name of religion do some of the most wicked things. So sometimes we wonder, where does this come from? We want order. We want life. We are living in a very dangerous moment in human society. Look at what's going on in Russia. Look at what's going on in Europe. Look at what's going on in America. We've gone insane. I mean, have you ever seen a comedy like our current elections? Really? But we want order. We want control. We turn to strong men and strong voices. And history has taught us that is always a dangerous place to be. Abraham Heschel, the Jewish philosopher, said this. It's not enough for me to be able to say I am. 
I want to know who I am and in relation to whom I live. It's not enough for me to ask questions. I want to know how to answer the one question that seems to encompass everything I face. What am I here for? If I don't know who or what I am, if I don't know why I'm here, then I'm always seeking and never finding. Dallas Willard, Christian philosopher, said, human life essentially involves meaning. Meaning is not a luxury for us. It's a kind of spiritual oxygen. We might say that it enables souls to live. So if we're in a world where there, in an empty world where there is no meaning, where there's, the unseen is, 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 is just there, it's chemicals and atoms, it's nature and, and uh, uh, biology in process, and there's nothing, there's no metaphysical substance, there's nothing beyond that, then we have to live our life bounded by chance and necessity. That's all there is. Or chance, necessity, and choice, if you want to include that. Helen Keller talks about our insatiable desires. Contentment is not fulfillment of what you want, but realization of how much you want. Now, I don't know you. I've been here for the first few moments. Obviously, we've not had a chance to talk to you, but I know some things about you. I can believe that out there all across this room, there's intense hunger and longing. Who am I? What, 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 make, what would make me happy? Why do I feel this longing sense of restlessness? You see, the human condition has to be answered. It has to be answered practically. It has to be answered philosophically. If Islam has the answer, then we should be Muslims. If Marxism has the answer, then we should be Marxists. If Christianity has the answer, we should be Christians. If Bill Gates has the answer, then we should all be Bill Gates, I, I guess. But we need to answer the question, which raises the issue of the human condition. You see, back in the 20th century, one of the most famous atheists, one of the smartest men in Britain, was Lord Al uh, Bertrand Russell. And this is what Bertrand Russell came to teach us from his Cambridge education, from his vast knowledge of philosophy. Only on the scaffolding of unyielding despair should we build our lives. What? Only on the scaffolding of unyielding despair should we build our lives? Now, a contemporary atheist, one of the most famous atheists who has sold millions of books, Dr. Richard Dawkins said, in a world in which we live, there is no evil, there is no good, there is no rhyme or reason to existence. DNA just is, and we dance to our DNA. So there you have, from one of the world's best scientists, telling us the meaning of life is that we dance to our DNA. You're all living by your genes. Some of you, it's your Levi's, some of you, it's your Wranglers, so whatever. It's our genes that, that defines us. Everything is genetics. Everything is scientifically determined. But you, not many people, not everybody can live with this. It's the logical outcome of a naturalistic view of the world, but many people don't believe that. Over 90% of human beings in history and today believe that there either is a god, the gods, or something. That's a very significant figure. They may be believing in spaghetti monsters. They may be believing in pie in the sky. Or... There may be something there to which they're responding, and they're believing in something that is real. So this question is very significant, and it raises the question of truth. Is there such a thing as truth? Can we know the reality? Now I say, look, I don't come to church for all this heavy thinking. I come to be happy. I come for joy, joy, joy. But can you have joy if you don't know what truth is? Can you have joy in make-believe? Do you just have joy because your emotions are stirred up? Or do you have joy in the substance that you're connected to the true nature of reality. You see, world and life views are models. They are pictures of story. Everybody is offering interpretation, but they're not all the same. Have you ever taken the time to compare the options? 
You see, what I find with many educated people is this. They're educated about their bank. They're educated about their consumer choices. They're educated about their spouse. They're educated about the latest thing in their job. And they're completely or very simplistic when it comes to the biggest questions of existence. We may read one book or one article. We may go on a blog site, get Wikipedia's wisdom for us. We may Google Richard Dawkins or a couple of Nietzsche quotes. And that's all we need to answer the ultimate questions of existence. These questions are serious, ladies and gentlemen. And you have to invest with them the same urgency that you invest in other things. Comparison is the mother of clarity. So they don't all say the same things. Ideas are not equal opportunity providers. We need an answer. Viktor Frankl was a survivor of Auschwitz. He wrote a marvelous book, a man who lived through the Holocaust, who saw people give up in despair. And he wrote a marvelous book called Man's Search for Meaning. And this is what he said. Man's search for meaning is a primary force in his life and not a secondary rationalization of instinctual drives. This meaning is unique and specific in that it must and can be fulfilled by him alone. Only then does it achieve a significance that will satisfy his own will to meaning. This search for meaning, this idea for an answer, not just intellectually, but existentially, something that truly answers the meaning of existence. The Greek philosopher Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living, but many of us hang a do not disturb sign over our life. It's over our bedroom, it's over our iPad, it's over our thought life. Do not disturb, leave me with my self-contained designer-made life. Have you explored an answer? And let me ask you this, is there a prejudice in your life that it would be any answer is good but God? Say, I have an engineering degree, yes, I'm an educated person. I've studied at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I'm smart. That God stuff, that's for idiots and infantile. Yes, my friend invited me to come to the church this morning. But I mean, look at these silly people. They're not as smart as I am. I've got all the answers. I'm not going to be swayed by some emotional criteria. Why is it that you will not often open your heart to consider the deeper things of life? You see, Thomas Huxley, Thomas Nagel, They said clearly, honestly in their books, that they reject God not because of the evidence, because they don't want there to be a God. Thomas Nagel specifically says, I don't want the universe to be like that. Now here's the issue. Therefore, it's not a question of truth. It's a question of morality. He doesn't want there to be a God. Even if the evidence said there is a God, I'm still not going to believe it. We want something else. Now, you may not be a Christian. You may not believe in God. But I want to read you a passage from the Bible that describes the human condition And I want to see if you think this describes us accurately. Paul is writing to the Romans. The Romans, of course, the center of the Roman Empire at that time, but there was a little church planted there. The beginning of the understanding of the Christian theology of life is being explained, and there's an incredible depth into this. And here is Paul taking us into an understanding of some of the way the world works. He's just talked about the revelation of the gospel. He's talked about the fact that God has made himself known. But this is what it says in verse 18 through verse 23. Now, some of this language is a little bit uncomfortable, so hear it. But it is the Scriptures. For the wrath of God, it says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they're without excuse. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. 
professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now, this is a fascinating study here because what the Bible says is that there is an awareness of God. It doesn't say we know who God is, but it talks about this general sense that two things are known to everybody. If you like it, as Immanuel Kant talked about the starry heavens above and the moral law within. There's a kind of an awareness of something. But you see, that awareness either leads us to God or it leads us away from God. Because what you look in the Romans passage, what happens is there's an awareness of something, but it makes us uncomfortable. If I am living my own lifestyle, if I'm living the party lifestyle and I'm taking drugs and I'm smoking around and I'm, you know, sexing and up and I'm living, you know, the, the vida loga, you know, party life, ooh, smashed up, man, then I don't want there to be a God. I don't want any moral authority looking over me or measuring me. Holiness is a threat to my existence. So what does man do? Well, it says, secondly, the awareness then leads to suppression. So an awareness of this truth leads us to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In other words, we don't want the truth because we're afraid, because we feel exposed, because we feel empty. Now, that's a different question. If there is no God, that's one thing. If there is a God, but I'm afraid of him because I'm in a messy condition, that's a different thing indeed. The Bible takes that into account. You see, we are helpless about the big issues. Now, I look around the room, some of these young faces, smiling faces, and some of the older ones, and I don't want to disappoint you, or sorry, I don't want to horrify you, but the fact is, we're all going to die. I'm sorry, but it's got a 100% success rate. I mean, there are things in life, trust me, I don't want to do. There's places I don't want to go. I really don't want to go through the death thing, but I'm sorry, it's a reality. And you see, any philosophy, any vision of life that doesn't deal with death is a, a big issue. Rochefort said, death in the sun are not to be looked at steadily. That's why we don't talk about it anymore. Oh, you know, death. <laughs> Who wants to talk about that? That's for the movies. That's not for real life. Let's not. Emily Dickinson said, all but death can be adjusted. <laughs> Winston Churchill, any man who said he's not afraid of death is a liar. Ralph Waldo Emerson, the blazing evidence of immortality is our dissatisfaction with any other solution. You see, perhaps our hungers, our longings, our dreams are so powerful because they point to something real, something in the unseen, something possible, something beyond that answers the deepest needs of the human heart, including death, including sorrow, including the meaning of existence. Nathaniel Hawthorne put it this way, our creator would never have made such lovely days and given us the deep hearts to enjoy them above and beyond all thought unless we were meant to be immortal. Now I'm reading recently because of part of the things we do, we have to read all kinds of exotic, weird literature, and websites. I've been reading up on the whole idea of transhumanism and the post-human condition, and now we have a utopian movement, you know, through cyber technologies and through augmentation, we'll solve death and we'll live forever, we'll go into cryogenic sleep. By the way, Michael Jackson will be there, yes, so don't worry about it. But this is all based on technological and Promethean illusions growing out of the, 20th, of the 19th century enlightenment. Death has been conquered already. There is a new humanity possible. A door into the other world has already been opened. And I want to talk to you in closing about that door. Just one verse of scripture found in Titus chapter 2. Ch Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, we get some good news. It says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to many. The grace of God has appeared. In the Christian concept of reality, 
It's not that an idea showed up. It's not that a philosophical system was injected to the universe. It is that God himself took on flesh in order to come to humanity in all of our brokenness, in all of our pain, to redeem us so he could bring us back to God. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. The author of life has the power. Now, I don't know, are anybody, it's okay, you don't need to look around because some people might get embarrassed. Any of you movie buffs here? Yeah, come on, there's a few Bollywood. Yes, yes, some Hollywood over here. Okay. Alfred Hitchcock films, which I know they're old. Hitchcock had this beautiful technique. People who like good movies know that. Every now and or in every Hitchcock film, he shows up in his films. And so people who are watching a Hitchcock, where is he? And then just a couple of minutes, you might see him getting on a bus. You might see him standing in the background of a scene. But Hitchcock was always, he stepped into it and everybody's, oh, there's the author. Kind of cute. He's the guy that made the film. He shows up in the film. In this story, in the nature of the universe, the author of life, the one who made it, has stepped into it to fix it. And that's what it means that the author, a message has been revealed. It's a message that comes to us. And what does the unseen real or the real that is unseen say to us today? It says that we are made in the image of God by God. That's the Christian message. So that every human being, every man, woman, and child, everybody has intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. Every one of you. We have features of our existence that are only answered by a relationship to the source of life. The greatest need that we have is for love in relationships. You see, we serve a God who is a community. He's not an isolated monad like the God of Islam. He's a God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, a community of self-giving love. One God in three persons. And at the heart of the universe is a relational being who in love creates and who in love redeems. And if you want to know what life is like, then in our brokenness, in our disordered, in our alienated and strange way, we can be brought back to that love because of the forgiveness of Christ, because of the healing power of the atonement, and because of a new beginning. Now, what does that mean? I was born, as I said, in Scotland. I left home when I was 15. I was an angry young man. I became a bouncer in a dance hall. used to throw people out. used to earn money by fighting and those kind of things. And then one day, this lady that I had been living with, a married woman who had left her husband, she came in and said that she'd become a Christian. And I thought, what? A Christian? What's a Christian? She said she was converted. Well, I mean, you became a three-room and kitchen? What does that mean? I mean, she was using language. I had no categories. It just sounded silly, you know? She was converted. Something happened. She met the living God, and it changed her life. Now, I got really mad, and like a, the good thug I was, I kicked her out and, you know, separated. After a few weeks, she calls me up to meet these Christians, and I go along and my plan was to beat them up, but that's not what happened. I got, I got ambushed by God. <laughs> He's bigger than I am. And I learned something that night. I learned that there was a God that forgives, that heals, that restores, and changes. And here's something I found out a lot later. There are words in the Greek for life. Three words, in fact. The first word is bios. Biological life is everything. All of us have biological life by birth. It's your meat life, if you like. The second word is the word suke, or from which we get our word soul or culture. That's your mental, emotional life and cultural life. All of us share that. That is natural. That there is a third word for life that only comes in the scripture, that only comes from God, and it's the word zoe, the word for spirit. This is important. Why? Because I thought Christianity was about morality. I thought God was about keeping the rules and keeping the systems. But this is what Michael Green said. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Please hear that. Christianity is about life, ladies and gentlemen. It's about connected to the source of life, to be born again, to go back to the Father, to be renewed. 
So let me conclude with this. Can man live without God? Can we live in a, in a realm of an unseen with no connection? No, we can't because there are hungers in, a, in us that are so big that we need an answer, not just intellectually, not just philosophically, but practically, existentially, and humanly. We need love. We need warmth. We need forgiveness. We need eternal life, and we need ultimate hope. And Jesus says, or actually in 1 John it says, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. So I'm going to invite your pastor to come back and just remind us that if you want life, the Word has become flesh. The unseen has become real. And if you want to know whether God's there, it's not just a philosophical question. Yes, answer your questions. But the Bible gives an invitation. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's a decision, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you'll give it some thought. God bless you, Pastor. Thank you, Dr. Seward. Can I just have the worship team come up again, please? And let's just stand for a few moments. You heard this morning facts and really... A challenge here this morning to understand and recognize the reality of the unseen that God is real and he wants to be real to each, each of us the simple message of the Bible then is that in order for God to bring us into that experience of himself Jesus died for us on the cross to remove this barrier of sin and give each one of us an opportunity to experience God to experience Jesus for ourselves and so I want to take a few moments just to pray right now. And if there's anybody here this morning and you feel that, that you've been challenged in your heart, you feel in your, inside you, something inside that says, yes, I want to respond to this. I want to open up my heart to know Jesus, to know the living God. And I want to begin this journey, trying to find out for myself, trying to understand for myself, trying to experience for myself who the God of the Bible is. Who is this God? Who is Jesus? I want to give you an opportunity to make that decision this morning before we dismiss. So could we just bow our heads, please? And even if there's one person here, even if there's one person here this morning, you've been challenged inside you. And you would like to respond. I want to lead you in a very simple prayer. It's a sim simple expression of the cry of your heart, the cry of our hearts, saying, I want Jesus. I want meaning. I want purpose. I want to know my Creator. I want to live for Him. If you'd like to do this, if you'd like to make that decision this morning, I invite you to just pray this prayer with me right where you are. If you've never done this before in your life, would you just say this with me, Lord Jesus? I want to know you. I want to come into a relationship with you. I want to know my purpose in life. I want meaning for my life. Help me. Come into my life. Forgive my sins. And help me to know you more. I pray this in Jesus' name.
we trust that this message was a blessing to you. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at apcwo.org. Also, visit our website www.apcwo.org for additional resources. Thank you for listening and God bless you.